From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's program, New Concepts in Intraocular Lenses, Part 2. But it's a very uh, uh, important area, lots of exciting technology, lots of neat things. Um, I think that it's going to be an extremely important area for ophthalmologists. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Olson declares consulting fees from AMO. Do you enjoy the programs you hear in this podcast? Why not contribute to the conversation by calling our listener response lines? Share your expertise about an issue we've discussed by calling. In the United States, dial area code 646-808-0231. That's a local New York number. In the United Kingdom, dial 020-7558-8275. That's a local London number. You can also ask questions of any guest who has appeared on the podcast. Then your question will be relayed to the guest, and your question and the guest's answer will appear on the following podcast. Go ahead. Try it out. It's cool. This is the second half of my conversation with Randall Olson. In the first part, podcast last week, Dr. Olson discussed phagic intraocular lenses and had just begun to speak about presbyopia. We'll pick up with a question I asked at the end of last week's program. What are the intraocular lens options for treating presbyopia? Well, we've got three right now that are approved in the United States. We've got a bunch of them that uh, are sitting out there in the wings. And so I think the future in that field is very bright. Uh, But the three lens we have, uh, the one lens, the crystal lens, which has been called the one that's the, uh, of the three that's an accommodative lens, but that's been thrown under real question today. Um, The actual measured level of true movement of the lens cannot explain the refractive uh, studies uh, and the refractive results. So, I think more and more people feel that it's more of a pseudo-accommodation, um, uh, you know, induced astigmatism in the lens, maybe some induced astigmatism in the cornea. Uh, focal steepening of the actual lens itself has been suggested. So it's not quite as clear how well that particular one works. Uh, it's, uh, it's a lens that seems to uh, give pretty good intermediate vision, uh, not as good near vision. Uh, but there are proponents who like it a lot. Uh, then the um, other one is the Restore lens, which uh, has really, uh, you know, moved fairly rapidly in the marketplace. Uh, that's a diffractive, and they they have this apodized diffractive, which is a way to minimize the uh, unwanted images at night, and uh, it it does significantly decrease nighttime glare and halos, although it does not eliminate them. Uh, there certainly have been People have insisted on explantation to get rid of the nighttime images, but nothing like the array lens was. And it clearly gives the best reading vision of all three. The reading vision appears to be quite spectacular, but uh, the intermediate vision is not very good. So uh, the patients that, uh, that I've talked to, they'll say, oh, I can read just great with it, and it's easy to read, but you know, I've got to lean too close to the computer and my intermediate vision is not good, and so they're annoyed about that. 
The resume lens, by changing the shape of the rings, it's a, a refractive lens, getting rid of the outer ring, which represented most of the unwanted images for a ray, has also significantly decreased the nighttime images. And I'm not, you know, they're, they're, they're not good studies comparing resume to restore on nighttime images, but what few I saw at EFCRS suggested that uh, they're about the same. They're both substantially better than Hooray and that nighttime image issues are about the same. The resume, however, uh, clearly is a better intermediate lens, uh, and the near vision is good, but not as good as resume. So we've got three different lenses, um, and it's, it's going to be really interesting to see how the crystal lens does in this particular market. Um, I haven't seen any figures recently since the battle's been going on, but uh, what I have seen would suggest that right now it's restore, uh, is number one in that market, Resume is number two, and Crystalline's is third, even though Crystalline's had a head start. I am, I'd love to see good head-to-head -head comparison between the three. There's almost nothing. Uh, m almost all the studies that are done are comparing with a monofocal lens. Uh, there's, I, I, have, I have almost nothing that I can give you a solid scientific comparison between the three because there's just no good data out there. I just want to clarify because you've covered a lot of ground with that with that last answer. The array lens, which is one that has exhibited questionable satisfaction, the complaints have have been from the concentric rings on the lens, particularly in dim vision when the pupil dilates. Correct. There, there is a refractive lens for which the concentric rings are are limited just to the to the central part of the uh, uh, lens. Am I getting that right? Yeah, it's the resume. The resume is a modified array, but they took off the outer ring completely, which represented most of the unwanted images, and then they modified the uh, inner rings to minimize the images, and so uh, they've decreased the level of those nighttime images substantially. Uh, improve the intermediate vision a bit and, and doing that as well. And, uh, uh, and the net result is, is that they have the near vision, better intermediate, and substantially less night vision problems of the array. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm hearing things like the night images problems of the array for both resume and restore have been decreased 90 to 95%. And uh, uh, all I know is that, is that it, it is substantial in, in what studies I've seen and, and where they are, but very little head-to-head -head comparison. And the few I saw at ESCRS suggested that the nighttime image complaints, those who had one, a restore in one eye and resume in the other, which, by the way, some people in Europe were talking about doing because the, I mean, uh, a res the resume gave much better intermediate vision and the restore much better near vision, and between the two, it, it uh, seemed to produce very good satisfaction. So that's kind of an interesting twist that I've heard. But those who've had both feel that nighttime images are different, but about equally objectionable, mild and equally objectionable. What is the optical difference between the refractive lenses and refractive? the diffractive lens? Yeah. Well, the refractive lenses are, are basically uh, a lens surface which focuses, uh, and so you, you've got a ring of, of a lens material that focuses um, at one focal length and the other one at a different focal length. So you're literally refracting the light just like we're used to, but you've got a ring that's near and a ring that's at distance, and the transition known, the zone gives you intermediate. The diffractive 
is a series of uh, little etchings on the back of the lens. And uh, as the light hits that, that uh, you get one light image that comes through that gives you your normal focus. And then as light hits these little etchings, you get a second uh, image that uh, uh, is focused at a nearer point. So it's, it's a bifocal. You really, are, you really don't have a multifocal. It's really a bifocal lens. You, you do get more scattered with the diffractive, but what gets focused is very crisp and very clear. So that's why, I mean, the near image they have on that is, is, is very crisp and clear. It's, it's, uh, and it's a, it gives you the clearest near image, but you're not going to get an intermediate image. Now, the uh, first lens that, that you mentioned is the crystal lens. And I just want to clarify this. The crystal lens is a hinged single optic lens. The data that, that, you, that you mentioned that suggests that the accommodation, that, that some of it is pseudo-accommodation... Uh, I think the comes, evidence is most of it pseudo-accommodation. Right. Com comes from studies that have demonstrated that, number one, the uh, optic tends to uh, move very, very little. That, number two, that... that well, in some paradoxically, cases, actually moves backwards. Right. That, that, in, that in some cases, that, that it... This that is it, objective that work that's been done by the group out of Vienna, yeah. And that some of the accommodation may be the result of induced plus cylinder, presumably from the lens tilting. Is that right? That's one theory. Um, actually, they've been doing some wavefront analysis. Kevin Walsh has been doing that, and he gets some in which he gets a central steepening of the lens. He huh. thinks that actually kind of the lens, the optic itself, buckles a little bit. So, uh, but 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 clearly something else is happening. I don't I don't think anybody. No one is pushing the fact that the uh, uh, comet or the uh, the near vision effect of this is all accommodation. I think everybody agrees that 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 clearly there are important pseudo accommodative components of that lens. What are dual optic lenses? That's what I was going to say. The, the things that are sitting out there, uh, the uh, synchrony lens is probably the furthest along. It's a dual optic lens, and the dual optic lens is powerful in regards to the fact that minimal movement needs to occur between the lens for a lot of refractive change. The synchrony lens is the one that's got the biggest track record, and uh, uh, they have a true, they've been able to prove that the lens moves, and the lens the movement that it gives you uh, gives you the type of refractive change that you would expect from the movement. So, I mean, I think they've been able to document that that truly is an accommodative lens. Uh, my biggest fear of the lens is the capsule contracting just to have a very complicated uh, monofocal lens with the dual optic you know, mess in place. And uh, it turns out that the movement seems to resist capsular uh, fibrosis and opacification. And so at least uh, so far with a couple of years under some of the patients, they're doing very well without much change. The biggest problem they have is predicting the distance vision because in the resting state, if there's a little gap between the lenses, you're going to be myopic. Right. They're doing well, much better than I would expect. But I, I think the kind of, you know, 95% plus or minus a half diopter is going to be a real tough test for them. There's a couple other out there, by the way, but synchrony is far and away the most advanced. I was going to ask what happens to these lenses when the anterior and posterior capsular leaves fuse or if the capsule shrinks, if, if it fibrosis? If the capsule fibrosis and shrinks, then you basically seal the front um, optic to the back optic and you've got a very expensive monofocal lens. 
Now, what is the smart lens? Smart lens is, is actually a long ways away. Um, no human clinical studies going on, and uh, I haven't even seen a study that shows that it necessarily will work, but it's an innovative idea. It's a rod that is thermoplastic. Once it goes into the eye and reaches body temperature, uh, the lens itself becomes malleable, changes its shape to fill the bag, and uh, you don't have any haptics to it, and it's a flexible material about the same as a five, six-year-old lens. And the idea is, is that potentially you could use this to uh, get accommodative effort going on. Until they've done a study that shows that with the uh, smart lens, with the uh, rod IOL, that uh, just because it's malleable and just because it's sitting in a capsule with the capsular rexus, that uh, you can transmit the capsular forces to the lens to actually cause it shape, great shape, I list that one as purely theoretical. Or these others, we know something about it. That one's purely theoretical. Um, I do think eventually, you know, we'll figure out a way to fill the bag and get something more like the true accommodation we're used to. But I'm just not sure this, that the smart lens is going to do it. I think it's going to be a great lens as far as being able to insert it through a small incision. Um, you can imprint upon this lens um, uh, toricity as well as uh, power. Um, you could imprint upon it a sphericity that's specific for the patient. So, I mean, there's lots of other exciting things, but whether it will be accommodative lens or not, uh, I mean, I, I, I don't know if, it's that, if, if it'll work that way yet through a regular capsular rexus. Now, one that clearly is a, the most powerful of all of the accommodative lenses by far is the new lens. Have you heard of that one? No, talk, talk about that, please. The new lens uh, basically uh, has a small uh, piston that when accommodation occurs, there is a window in the front of the lens that uh, fluid bulges out that lens, and it's based upon what birds do when they dive into the water. And uh, they have a very rigid iris, and they bulge their lens out through the pupil to give them, uh, you know, 30 diopters of power to uh, be able to focus underwater once the uh, uh, water has obviated the power of the cornea. And uh, they've done this in primates, and it's come a long ways. And indeed, in primates, you can easily see without difficulty patient that the primates are, you know, accommodating up to 20 diopters. And um, it's it's a pretty you know it's pretty complex. It's a bit Rube Goldsberg as you look at it, but by darn, they've got it down to something that uh, that is easy to implant. I've implanted these in uh, you know in uh, pig eyes, and and uh, they've got it down to where it's easy to implant. Um, the overall effect seems to be pretty straightforward, and down down now to about a five five and a half millimeter incision, and and they're improving as things go on. And uh, they're moving pretty fast on that one. I think new lens could be going to clinical trial. It wouldn't surprise we hear uh, human implantation of that this year. What evidence exists that blue light is phototoxic? Uh, frankly, I mean, it's, it's pretty theoretical. And uh, uh, most of it has to do with uh, studies done by uh, Sparrow at Columbia with... Uh, Lipofuscin A and uh, the fact that uh, you get degenerative changes associated 
more with blue light, and if you block the blue light, you eliminate it. And there is some evidence that uh, you know that uh, increased accumulation of that is associated with macular degeneration. You know, I, I, I the, the overall evidence. I mean, there's there's really there's really epidemiologically not much you could hang your hat on in regards to that. And uh, uh, it, it's it's been a, a tough battle to show that, um, you know, macular degeneration is worsened by cataract surgery. And there were a few studies that suggested that and a few that showed it. But, you know, the announcement, uh, you know, that looking at the ARED study, which is probably, well, without question, is the most complete prospective examination of uh, what happens with cataract patients, what happens with macular degeneration, how they relate. We've never had something in which we knew all of those parameters before cataracts formed and removed, and they followed those patients now on, and this has been years later, and they have no correlation whatsoever between cataract surgery and macular degeneration. So it's kind of hard to show that blocking blue light after cataract surgery is doing anything when even AREDs couldn't find any correlation between cataract surgery and macular degeneration. That that you know allowing more blue light made any difference in how patients were progressing. So I, I would say at this point it's, it's uh, very theoretical, and um, it would take a, a major long-term study to to give the kind of definitive evidence. But I mean it it was. It was better before the AREDS information came out because uh, at least they could show some epidemiology studies showing that MACDGEN got worse after cataract. You could never answer from that question, well, is that really because a lot of early macular generation wasn't appreciated until after cataract surgery? Mm-hmm. But you can answer that clearly with AREDS. And uh, it's a pretty profound statement that they found no correlation whatsoever, absolutely knowing what the status of the macula was ahead of time, and there's no evidence that it got any worse with cataract surgery. So I would say it's theoretical. I know that they tried to get new technology, intraocular lens approval, and, and the FDA's official statement was is that uh, there is no clinical evidence to prove that uh, blocking blue light has anything to do with macular degeneration. So, What are the, the downsides of blue blocking lenses? And I'm thinking now of the point that that you that you bring up in the in the paper about the the thresholds of uh, rods. Yeah, there are two cones. of which I'm aware of, and the main proponent of these has been Marty Mainster, who has an interesting role to play in this whole story because Marty's the one who uh, pushed for um, the UV filters, and he's the one that UV filters should be in intraocular lenses. The one is is that blue light is much important for our scotopic vision and that uh, uh, you will have impact on uh, blue, I mean, on uh, night vision uh, by putting uh, the blue blocker in in comparison to lenses that don't have it. Uh, Craig Jackson, who's a a rod researcher, has done work, and uh, he has shown that you can indeed measure uh, a loss of night vision with blue blocker lens in comparison on having a blue blocker lens, and it is consistent with Marty Mainster's BJO article of being in the 20% range. 
Now, the counter-argument to that is, is 20% loss of night vision clinically important? At this point, nobody can answer it. So uh, that's a theoretical, I mean, it's a, it's a real one, but is it, it's theoretical whether it's clinically important or not. And uh, it would be nice to get some studies of, of clinical relevance to that. But you can clearly measure that, uh, you know, the, in comparison to the non-blue blocker lens, that, that you're going to lose about 20% of your uh, scotopic vision. The other one is a newer argument, and it's a pretty interesting one, and that is that <clears throat> our entire melatonin system, which we know is light-driven, is driven largely by uh, blue cones, and that uh, a blue blocker lens, just as our own cataracts do, rob us a lot of those uh, melatonin-sensitive uh, cells and that uh, not getting enough melatonin is one of the important causes of uh, insomnia and poor sleep and feeling tired among older people, and that blocking that is a, is a significant potential problem. And uh, that evidence, as Marty has it, I think is a little more... He, I mean, he's got some pretty interesting stuff about how it doesn't take a lot of extra light to make a difference in, in people, in older people, and their ability to sleep. And not sleeping and not having enough, enough melatonin is also associated with depression and other issues that are a big problem for the elderly. Even their immune system is somewhat affected by that. And he shows that the studies, so if you get X amount more light, is, um, is, is in the same range of what a blue blocker lens reduces. So. Those are the two things. I mean, how big are those? I mean, each individual has to decide, but those are the two downsides. The color vision issue, other than in unusual people, is not a problem. The only one I've heard of is that uh, Kevin Miller had a patient who was an artist who had a blue blocker lens put in one eye and uh, had had a non-blue blocker in the other, and this lady was an artist, and uh, it upset her uh, color perception so much, she insisted on having the blue lens replaced with a clear lens. But that's, that's unusual. The vast majority of people uh, who've had one and one, one and the other can't tell the difference. So I don't think the color is a big issue. But there is that one, and that, that was published. I, I'm trying to remember where that was published. But it was recently published, I think, in um, AJO. Well, that was very comprehensive. Clearly, there's a lot going on in this field right now. There's just lots of activity. There's, there's, there's a lot of you know, things out there that, that are probably too soon to talk about because we, we don't even know anything more than just the spin that the companies are putting on it. But it's a very uh, uh, important area, lots of exciting technology, lots of neat things. Um, I think that it's going to be an extremely important area for ophthalmologists and that uh, um, I, I think that... Uh, how much people want to jump in right now, uh, um, I could fully understand that, that this makes a lot of sense, and the majority of people are kind of watching right now, waiting a little bit. But um, I'm convinced in uh, both in fakic intraocular lenses and in uh, presbyopic treatments of different variety that uh, we're right on the edge of a major shift and transition that will have great importance for ophthalmology. So, you know, don't need to jump in now, but definitely stay tuned. Randy, thank you very much. Oh, I appreciate it and uh, look forward to doing it again. Randall J. Olson 
is the John A. Moran Presidential Professor and Chair of the Department of Ophthalmology and Visual Sciences and Director of the John A. Moran Eye Center at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. His paper, New Intraocular Lens Technology, appears in the October 2005 issue of the American Journal of Ophthalmology. Ask questions of Dr. Olson or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.